The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The old lingo we used to say was medication-assisted treatment. We used to imply that the treatment was the social stuff you did, and then medication helped you. The new lingo is medication for opioid use disorder. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call focuses on an article titled Shifting Focus to Evidence-Based Management of Substance Use Disorders, authored by Dr. Sarah Wakeman. Joining me on the podcast is Stefan Kurtes, who is a physician in internal medicine and addiction medicine at the Hearsink UAB School of Medicine and the VA Medical Center in Birmingham. He's also an avid fencer and loves working with people who tell him when he has more to learn. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This is a very interesting editorial that your friend uh, Sarah Wakeman wrote based on some new guidelines from the VA on substance use disorders. And what we're going to focus on is what is the evidence-based management as of 2022? And I know that you've been involved in this your entire career. We'll cover three general ideas. We'll, We'll talk about alcohol use disorder. We'll talk about opiate use disorder. And then we'll talk about stimulant use. During our residencies, everybody deals with a lot of alcohol use disorder. There's some new recommendations about screening, which I don't really understand. So I was wondering if you could let me know what I should be doing in screening. I still go back to the old CAGE questionnaire. What do people feel is the best way to screen for alcohol use disorder? The best ways are two. Both of them look basically at how often the person drinks rather than at serious consequences. So one is a three-question questionnaire called the Audit C, which asks how often do you have a drink containing alcohol? How many standard drinks do you have on a typical day? And how often do you have six or more drinks on a typical occasion? To score it, of course, you need to go to some calculator or website. Uh, The other question is a single item screener, which is how many times in the past year have you had more than four drinks if it's a woman or more than five drinks if it's a man? If the person gives you one or more, then you do additional questions to find out if there's any uh, consequences and to specify with greater clarity how much they drink. The reason those are both recommended at this time is that what's been tested in trials is screening and brief intervention for unhealthy alcohol use, which is to say alcohol that exceeds thresholds like two or more drinks a day for women or three or more for men. And brief interventions for that reduce that kind of drinking. And that's what we have the evidence base for. So the questions we ask allow you to find people who have unhealthy alcohol use and to ask further questions to learn if there might be a true addiction problem. We do not have trial data that screening a brief intervention fixes severe alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, but it's certainly reasonable if you learn someone's drinking to ask more questions and, you know, be prudent in your response. So this is both an outpatient problem and an inpatient problem. Mm. 
the outpatient problem is to try to address it before it becomes an inpatient problem. Although we have patients who come in for other reasons in whom our screening might reveal an alcohol use disorder and they're not in because of complications of alcohol use disorder. How often should we be doing this? You know, we're asked to do a lot of stuff. Primary care physicians, every, everybody wants the primary care physician to ask two questions for their pet project. The inpatient physicians the same way. If we document it, how often should we be screening? So I think it's a different question for inpatient than outpatient. So inpatient, the reason I want to know if someone drinks is because it might influence the inpatient care plan. So I think you should ask if people are drinking at the time you admit them. And certainly most of the residents we work with do it. The current recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, as I recall, just recommends screening, but doesn't provide a frequency statement, uh, which to my mind means that the screening question could reasonably be done once a year or maybe even less frequently. But I can't see why you do it more often, given that ultimately what it leads to is just a guidance process to help people reduce unhealthy drinking. Okay, let, let's say I come to your office and you ask me and I'm drinking a bottle of wine uh, once a month. At the time. A bottle at a time. I, I often drink less than a bottle of wine, but sometimes, uh, and a bottle of wine is, I think, more than five drinks. At times, I drink heavy. What should you be doing about that? Do the follow-up questions. How much has the person potentially had consequences from drinking that affected their life as they see it? That's where your cage questions actually are really helpful because you want to get some sense as to whether there's likely an alcohol use disorder. How often have they tried to quit but been unable to? How often have they been criticized by others? But let's just assume that all those things are negative except they feel a little tired the day after the bottle. So at that point, they have a level of drinking that in epidemiologic data is associated with an elevated risk for some negative medical outcomes downstream. That's it. To my mind, the right thing is to say, gosh, you know, this is the epidemiologic data. And if I'm operating individually, just to say, you know, my general recommendation would be to try to get below having five or more drinks on an occasion if you're a male and four or more if you're a female. The evidence base for that quick piece of advice is pretty weak. If you're in a clinic which can do repeated brief counseling sessions, maybe by a nurse or somebody, there is some evidence that they'll reduce. But obviously, it's reasonable to tell someone, hey, this is the epidemiologic data. You might want to reduce. This works for both inpatient and outpatient. And they now clearly have an alcohol use disorder, which is impacting their health. We want to help them stop drinking uh, because they have liver disease or they have chronic pancreatitis or any number of other problems that we are all familiar with in residency. What recommendations do we have for initiating management of alcohol use disorder in the patient who is committed to trying to become abstinent from alcohol? Yeah. So first of all, you, you said the key words in the patient who is committed, which is they made a choice to reduce. Uh, we don't have evidence that we can make somebody reduce alcohol use, you know, with any medication, et cetera, unless they've made that decision. So the conversation is important. And if they say, look, I really want to make this change. What we have on the table are underused medications that have some efficacy in randomized controlled trials. And there's three of them mentioned in the editorial. One is uh, a campersate, which is probably a little bit weaker. The other is naltrexone, which can be given orally or it can be given by monthly injection. And the third, non-FDA approved, is topiramate. I did check the number needed to treat on these. So for a campersate, the number needed to treat from one study was 12. 
to prevent any return to drinking, which means 11 do return to drinking. For naltrexone, the number needed to treat was for return to heavy drinking. That's a medication where people often might drink again, but will drink less. And it's again, 10 to 12. Uh, I didn't find one for a camper say. Those medications have some efficacy as does uh, encouragement to utilize a 12-step mutual help group. There are trials that look at assistance in going to such groups, not forcing people in, but you know, encouragement. And that too seems to have some benefit. But crucially, it's really important to understand people are making changes in their behavior all the time in response to all these stimuli that the doctor doesn't control. And the research on resolution of alcohol and drug problems shows that those other things matter a lot and we can't change them, but I think it's reasonable to ask about them. Who are the people you care about? Who do you talk to about these issues? If you were to stop drinking, whose life would be most helped? People will tell me things that then become the source of conversation downstream. It seems to me, and I know no data on this, that many of the patients I see who come into the hospital with severe alcohol use disorders are self-treating depression. They know that it's not the right thing for depression, but it does not, it numbs, the alcohol numbs the depression. And so trying to get them to stop drinking without addressing the depression, are there any data on that or am I just making this up? There are data to suggest that people are self-treating affective states that are distressing to them with substance intake. That is shown nicely in data on return to use after treatment. What we don't have is a trial that shows that if you treat depression with an antidepressant, for example, that then the alcohol behavior will go away. But if you think two problems interact, it's still prudent to try to treat both problems that are interacting. And the last question on alcohol, and there's one that, that uh, you and I both address as uh, ward attendings, patient comes in with a concern for alcohol withdrawal. From these guidelines and from the evidence, what are the best drugs for us to use uh, in order to try to decrease the probability of alcohol withdrawal that is dangerous? The strongest evidence here is for the use of benzodiazepines to prevent seizures and delirium tremens. That evidence heavily favors diazepam and lorazepam. People debate which one to use because you have a trade-off in terms of duration of effect and diazepam is a problem if the person has severe liver dysfunction, but I mean severe. The benefit with that particular medicine is it lasts longer on the individual. You don't have to redose. The other decision point you have to make is whether to give a fixed schedule or to dose in response to withdrawal symptoms. Both can be justified depending on the system you are in, but you can usually get away with less medication if you dose in response to symptoms, provided you're assessing them in a regular way. And the symptom that we generally think of as tachycardia. Is that a fair oh. symptom to, uh, to judge whether or not they need more di uh, benzos? There's an alcohol withdrawal scale, which I always pull up on my phone when I'm on the ward. Siwa. So we, thank you, Siwa. That's great. So in that process, yes, I pay attention to tachycardia, but I don't think it's in the Siwa. What I wind up asking about are, does my voice sound loud? Do the lights bother you? Do you feel any creepy crawly sensations? I look for evidence of tremor. I ask them if the person's feeling apprehensive and I put my hand on their forehead to see if they're sweating. And sometimes I score it up and other times I see the person shaking and telling me my voice sounds too loud. And I decide, okay, uh, the symptoms are not well controlled. Well, let's move over to opiate use disorder because opiate use disorder was very prominent when I was an intern resident. So I learned a lot about it as much as I could 
back in the seventies. Unfortunately, it's all over the place now, and yeah. it's uh, the bane of our existence and the patient's existence. As I read this editorial, I was struck by the fact that the best way to treat opiate use disorder is with medications, and that behavioral treatments were not necessary. They don't seem to help. This was a revelation for me. Can you give us some of the nuances here and I know you've been very active along with some of your colleagues in helping us learn the right ways to use these medications for the benefit of our patients. And if, if you could just refresh me, I'd really appreciate it. So where an individual has opioid use with dependence, with consequences of various kinds in their life, that's opioid use disorder. And the trial proven treatments for reducing subsequent return to use are three FDA-approved medications. One is any formulation with buprenorphine in it. These are sublingual buprenorphines. There's another form used for pain, which hasn't been tested. The other is naltrexone, which can be injected, um, injectable naltrexone. And the third is methadone, which has been around and available through federally regulated opioid treatment programs since the 70s or late 60s. The use of adding on other social treatments seems reasonable. Like a lot of people need help putting their lives back together. But in randomized controlled trials, when you have one arm, uh, these have been done where there's a mandate to go to social treatment along with your medication versus medication alone. The one with the mandated social treatment is not superior in terms of preventing return to use. So the old lingo we used to say was medication assisted treatment. We used to imply that the treatment was the social stuff you did and the medication helped you. The new lingo is medication for opioid use disorder. That is the medication seems to be the treatment, but definitely there are lots of people who would say, yeah, my life is a complete mess. And I also need help with social problems and figuring out how to communicate about this with my kids and figuring out what to do about my HIV risk. So there often is a need for other supports but those have not been proven in trials to be effective. And uh, by effectiveness, we mean they don't revert back to using opioids. The usual endpoint in the trials has been the amount of non-prescribed opioid used in a given month. And in observational data, which is not necessarily from randomized trials, but long-term observations, going on and off the medication is associated with a lower, well, is associated with your risk of mortality from overdose. So the periods when people have gone off of the medication treatment, they're at higher risk of dying of overdose. And the periods when they're on, they're at lower risk by about 50%, which would seem to be a large effect. I remember a few patients I had when I was working with uh, one of our addiction medicine uh, physicians that some patients prefer one over the other and some are more willing to do one medication rather than the other. Do you have any reason why that is? So you're, you're happy yeah. with methadone clinic, you're happy with buprenorphine, you're happy with naltrexone, but do you have a preference on what you do or, and how do you, yeah. how do you negotiate that with the patient? So the editorial and the underlying VA review that it's based on highlight that the evidence, broadly speaking, is stronger for buprenorphine and methadone. And that the challenge with naltrexone, it's a, it's an antagonist. And in order to get on it, you have to accrue a period of about a week of non-use of opioids. So it's hard to get on. Then if you go off of it, 
uh, in principle, you're vulnerable to overdose at a lower dose of opioid than you were on before because you're now no longer tolerant. So in the real world, outcome studies do not find mortality reductions with naltrexone that they find with methadone and buprenorphine. However, in randomized controlled trials of compliant patients or adherent patients, all three can reduce use. So I would say it's easier as a general internal medicine doctor like me to propose starting buprenorphine naloxone combo product because I, I can prescribe it. And that one seems to have the strongest evidence. If that fails, the conversation becomes, should you go to one of these licensed treatment programs, which are often quite burdensome for methadone, which is a strong and effective medicine, or should we consider naltrexone, which requires a period of abstinence in order to get on it? And we have to overcome that barrier to entry in order to start it. And that's obviously gotta be based on the patient's life situation. In your experience, it is, seems to be most acceptable to people and many of these people would want to get off the opiates. Yeah, buprenorphine naloxone combination product is most acceptable to most people because you can wind up picking it up every two weeks or every month at a regular doctor's office. The burden of going to a clinic that might need to see you every single day is alleviated. Now, Drexone is also, I've run into patients who said, I don't want to be any, on anything that acts on those receptors the same way my old heroin did. And that's why I want to try out this naltrexone stuff. That's attractive to some people, but usually it's a minority. And is it your feeling that people, general internists and family physicians doing primary care should try to become expert in using these medications because they're going to run into the patients, or should they have a friendly addiction medicine specialist to help them? We're talking about a large change in American medical practice, which most people were not taught in medical school residency. I think the a reasonable concept would be to become a dabbler. So get some training and consider the idea that you start a few people and you have a friend who's going to offer you guidance when you get stuck on what to do. Either someone who just works in your institution or you can use a formal program. Like there's one called PCSS. You can sign up for a mentor, but become a dabbler. The dabbler does a few people who are easier to care for. They get a little bit of familiarity, and when it doesn't feel right to them, they seek advice and, if necessary, refer on. There's a beautiful article called It Will Begin With Dabblers, which is what I'm quoting here. So the, the final uh, substance abuse disorder group that Dr. Wakeman talks about is uh, the stimulant use disorder. And I assume this means cocaine, methamphetamine, yeah. et cetera. Yes. Are those harder to treat? And, and, yes. And, and what is... What should be our strategy with, the, with those people? A couple thoughts here. First of all, we don't currently have an FDA-approved medication that has efficacy for stimulant use disorder in the way that we do for alcohol or for opioid use disorder. This means that fundamentally the question will come up in clinical practice, but we as doctors who prescribe meds very often will not have an obvious thing to do. The one thing I think any doctor could justify doing now in America is if you have a, a person who's using stimulants in an addictive way, or even not, say, look, the supply these days has illicit fentanyl in it. Let me give you a naloxone prescription so that in case you do secure something on the illicit market, there's a chance that your life will be saved from an overdose. That's the easy part. Then in terms of treatment, the evidence favored by both the article by Dr. Wakeman and the VA review involves programs of treatment that are usually done by other health professionals. 
which involve uh, some form of behavioral counseling and a reward for not using. And that's the expression contingency management. The typical rewards used are vouchers with cash value of some kind. These days, gift cards and debit cards make perfect sense since they are easily transmittable into goods or a reward from the program. The program can have a supply stock of cool things that people like and it can give them to them, whether it's, and, and they can vary the size of that reward. And in essence, it creates a new reward pathway. And the evidence base for contingency management is really good in terms of randomized controlled trials. It's strong. It's not something medical doctors are typically doing. The challenge is that historically treatment programs have been cautious, nervous, afraid about essentially, I mean, a form of payment for not using drugs. It, it makes people uncomfortable as a moral and ethical question uh, in terms of how they think about the problem. At the end of Dr. Wakeman's wonderful editorial, she talks about how something that these guidelines do not address, and that's harm reduction strategies, which I think are really important for us to be thinking about things like needle exchange, things that say, okay, you're taking the drugs, you're going to take the drugs, we can't stop you from taking the drugs, let's try to keep you from having unnecessary complications, giving a prescription uh, for an opiate antagonist to, br to bring them out of an overdose. Could you expand on that a little bit? Because uh, I know you've been concerned about this for many, many years. Yeah, so the concept of harm reduction can be as simple as something we do in everyday life. I drive a car and sometimes I speed. I reduce harm by buckling my seatbelt. Maybe I'm making an imprudent decision, uh, but at least the seatbelt's buckled um, and preferably I should stop speeding. So that's one type of introduction of the idea. In the realm of drug use, the obvious form that many of us have accepted and embraced is the use of naloxone in widespread distribution of naloxone which is an overdose reversal agent. The problem is it's not widely distributed relative to need. Uh, recent modeling studies suggest every state in the country, the United States at least doesn't have enough, and it probably needs to be both over the counter and cheap. But that's a form of harm reduction. A step beyond, and we should acknowledge that randomized trials on these things usually don't exist. Needle exchange programs or needle service programs where the individual comes in, gets needles, but usually is also engaged in a conversation about treatment or treatment entry or their goals for life or their plans for using safer. Fentanyl testing strips, so the drug that you obtain can be tested. Again, to my knowledge, there's not a randomized controlled trial that shows that if you provide these strips, people avoid death, but it doesn't seem wrong to offer and I don't believe there's any compelling evidence that encourages new people to go out into the drug market. In England, there have long been, and in Switzerland, heroin maintenance programs where actually people go to the clinic, they greet the nurse, and they get their heroin. Uh, that seems improbable in a U.S. context, given our legal history, but you should know it exists. And there's some discussion about what's sometimes called opioid agonist monitored treatment. I'm sure I bungled it, but should there be a clinic where people do procure an opioid and are watched as they take it? Some of these things are being tried out in Canada. So this whole field uh, lost one of its great leaders very recently, uh, one that a gentleman who had a great impact on you, I know. And uh, we sort of wanted to dedicate uh, this podcast in his memory. Could you just tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Richard Sates uh, was a general internal medicine doctor 
a lot of the data we've discussed involves contributions by Rich. He also edited the Journal of Addiction Medicine. And the key thing about Rich as an internist and addiction scholar is that he always demanded clear evidence for what you're recommending. And if you're not recommending based on evidence, you should say you're not recommending based on evidence. Sometimes that meant upsetting the powers that be. So uh, we just talked about screening a brief intervention for alcohol use disorder because there's trial evidence. At this moment in time, that same thing is recommended for drug use disorder, but Rich published a trial in JAMA showing it didn't reduce drug use. And coupled with that insistence on evidence with Rich was a tremendous sense of humor so that all these conversations about what do you really know were just layered with warmth and kindness and humor, which made them so enjoyable. And for that reason, many of us who've worked in this field uh, have been influenced by him and will miss him greatly. Well, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast. I know that I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. Thanks so much for the chance to talk. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, interesting discussion covered a number of things. One that I really liked was the brief screening tool for alcohol use disorder. How many times in the past year for women have you had more than four drinks? And how many times for men have you had more than five drinks? What this does is it designates someone as have unhealthy drinking and leads us to asking more questions about their alcohol use and perhaps whether this is becoming a significant disorder. The next thing that Stefan really helped me with was the idea of being a dabbler, buprofenone and naloxone. Many of our opiate use disorder patients, we could handle with that medication, but we should always have an addiction friend who we can call up for the more complex cases. And finally, we discussed uh, stimulant disorder We have no medications for stimulant disorder. Behavioral therapies are probably the best way to go. We hope that this discussion helps you better approach your patients who have these substance use disorders. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.